Well, good morning again. My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors at Philippi. If you're new, if you're visiting, good to have you guys this morning. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. So why don't you grab your Bibles and turn them on. Did we already dismiss kids? I guess we were, that already happened. Yep. Okay. All right. Acts 16. Raise your hand if this name means anything to you, and, and don't Google it, because that's cheating, okay? Raise your hand if this name means anything. Leonard T. Schroeder. You, know, you don't know who that is. Do you really know who that is? I, I've heard of it before. It rings a bell, but I'm not sure. Okay, okay, okay. Go ahead, I know who that is. Okay, raise your hand if these words mean anything to you. D-Day, Normandy Beach Invasion. Anybody? Okay. Okay. Uh, you guys know D-Day. Um, Normandy Beach was, was a significant moment in, in history. Um, it was the moment where the Allied forces um, penetrated through the ranks um, of what had been taken of France at that point. It was the beginning of the end of the war in that the greatest sea invasion in history allowed the Allied forces to begin to funnel troops onto the beaches, establishing a beachhead from which they could begin to um, start the march of taking France back and really all of Western Europe. So who was Leonard T. Schroeder? He was the first guy on the beach. Pretty cool, right? First guy on the beach. First boots to hit the sand. Pretty cool. Um, this small victory in Normandy opened up the floodgates for the full might of the Allied forces to be poured in. Somebody had to be the first on the beach. Somebody had to be the first one to land, right? Well, similarly, in three, uh, 313 AD, so we're talking about 250 years or so after the Apostle Paul started doing missionary journeys, um, maybe 270 years after Christ died, roughly, uh, Empire Constantine, the Roman Empire, okay, issued the Edict of Milan, are you familiar with this, which accepted Christianity uh, and no longer persecuted it. Okay, if you remember, Rome persecuted Christianity severely in the first century, um, in the first, uh, first really 50 to 100, even longer years of, of Christianity. But then within 200 to 250 years, Christianity had grown to such staggering size that, that Rome not only embraced it, 10 years later, it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. You ever think about that? So from being persecuted, I mean, the book of Acts is about Paul um, largely being taken from trial to trial, standing before judge, before judge, and ultimately being, um, I mean, after the book of Acts, he was ultimately killed by the Romans. Um, yet a couple hundred years later, Christianity literally overtakes Rome as an empire. Uh, so who was the Leonard Schroeder of that? Who were the first boots on the ground in the Roman culture, in the Roman world? Who were the first to really become the, the beachhead? Who was the first beachhead, if you will, of this invasion by the kingdom of God into this Western world? Well, that's what we're going to learn about this morning in Acts chapter 16. Uh, we are going to learn about how the church at Philippi, the real OG Philippi, for those older in here, that's original gangster, OG Philippi. Um, we are Philippi, but we are not the original Philippi. There is a real Philippi, and we read about how it started in Acts chapter 16. People ask me all the time, what is a Philippi? And I say, we are a, a pie-filling uh, organization. We <laughs> fill pies. It's a Philippi. Um, in case you ever plant a church, don't name it something people can't spell. And uh, it's it's very confusing. I actually, by the way, um, confession. I, I when I went to buy the web domain for this church, um, I, I typed in philippi.com and it was available. I was like, oh, philippi.com is available. So I bought it. It was like two hundred dollars. I was like, yeah, philippi.com. I spelled it wrong. <laughs> so we own Philippi with one L. Wait, with Philippi with two L's and one P.com. I, I, I think it's expired by then. So then I realized, no, it's not. for So kids are dismissed, by the way. If in fourth through ninth grade, you guys can have, I thought you guys already left, but you're, you're good to go. Um, 
Anyways, yeah, so I don't know why I brought all that up. So we're going to talk about how Philippi, the original Philippi started, and we haven't talked about Acts chapter 16 since the very first Sunday we met here as a church. This was the very first passage that we looked at uh, three years ago when we, when we started this church. And so I thought it'd be worth revisiting and taking another look at it, another stab at Acts chapter 16 and asking kind of the question, what was it about Philippi that was so kind of foundational for us as a church and why we wanted to name this church Philippi? Um, and how did this church become a beachhead um, for what God was going to do in the Western world? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're a note taker, we're going to look at three gospel encounters in Acts chapter 16, three different people, three very different types of people are all going to come to Christ in this story, and we're going to see how that happens, how the power of the gospel breaks in, um, and, and how this church was formed um, in Philippi. So let's dive right in. We're in Acts chapter 16. Let me give you some background, because I know we're just... just punching right into the middle of the book of Acts. So I need to give you the context. Paul, um, the first half of the book of Acts is really more about um, Jerusalem and what God's doing in Jerusalem and, and through the, the disciples, through Peter um, and, and his sermons and the revival that breaks, breaks out there. The second half of the book of Acts is all about um, <clears throat> the Pauline missionary trips. And we basically have three of them. And, and then the, a large part of the end of the book is about Paul basically being um, going from trial to trial to trial. So we're in the part of the book book of Acts where Paul is on his second missionary trip. And uh, his first missionary trip was a little bit shorter. It was with his um, counterpart named Barnabas. Um, now Paul has picked up a new missionary team, some names that you're probably familiar with, Silas, Timothy, the same Timothy that Paul wrote to in the book of First and Second Timothy, and Luke. Dr. Luke, Luke, the personal physician to the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Acts is part two to the Gospel of Luke. So Paul has picked up this missionary team, and he's starting to head out on his second missionary journey. Now, you have to remember, the Gospel has not really left Jerusalem and Samaria so Paul is really in his team is some of the first to bring this idea of Christ and his resurrection, him crucified, out of this localized environment, out into the world. Uh, and we're going to see how that happens here. So let's punch in here in, in verse 6 of Acts chapter 16. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia... And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now, that means absolutely nothing unless you look at a map. So can we throw the map up here? So here's what Paul does. He starts down here. I'm sorry for you guys over there. That's just the cheap seats, okay? Um, <laughs> so Paul starts, uh, where am I? Okay. Paul starts down here in Israel. Um, he starts making his way up, um, and then he decides, I want to go into Asia Minor. Okay, Asia Minor, that's where the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation were written. It's what First Peter was written to. Paul's really wanting to go into Asia Minor, but the Holy Spirit won't let him. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means there was like a giant invisible bubble over Asia Minor, and every time Paul would, like, he'd walk into it. I don't know. Maybe it was like, I don't know. The, the Holy Spirit wasn't letting him go in. So what they did was they skirted the top of Asia Minor, sort of waiting, as we'll see, for the Lord to speak, and then they end up camping here at Troas. They try to go north. Holy Spirit won't let them, and they're sort of stuck. They ran out of land here. Now, Paul's systematic mind was to sort of hit this area here first, right? He wasn't even thinking about going up into Macedonia, into Greece, into these other parts of the world. You can leave that up for a little bit here. It might help a little bit. So, so Paul is trying to get to Asia Minor. That's important. Can you note that? He's trying to get to Asia Minor, the big pink sec section there. Don't think Asia like China, okay? Think Asia Minor. He's trying to get there, and the Holy Spirit's not, not going to let him. So what do they do? They camp out at Troas, and they're waiting for some instruction. They're waiting for some clarity about where to go Next, so uh, do you ever notice, by the way, that our logical idea of how God should work and God's actual plan for how God's going to work are usually not the same thing? <laughs> I mean, Paul's a systematic guy, right? He's like, we're going to work our way north. That way we don't miss anything, like Asia Minor. That's the next most obvious place for God to do a work. Now, was God going to reach Asia Minor? Yeah, 
Seven letters of the seven churches in Revelation, those were all churches in Asia Minor. God did reach Asia Minor, but he did it through different people. God had a specific plan for Paul, the apostle, the missionary, and that was to go somewhere else. So look what happens in verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man, note that, a man of Macedonia was standing there. Where's Macedonia? You see the orange there, top left? Northern Greece, okay? Northern Greece, Macedonia. He gets this vision of a man from Macedonia who was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So after feeling like they were hemmed in and stuck at the edge of the water with no more land, uh, finally God speaks to Paul um, in this vision of a man. We call it the Macedonian call. This man calling him to come preach the gospel. So Paul goes, great, this is what we've been waiting for. They jump on a boat in Troas, verse 11. Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. That's a little island um, across the Aegean there. Um, They sail about 150 miles, verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So they immediately jump on a boat from the port of, port of Troas. They go about 150 miles across to Neapolis. They hike eight miles to Philippi, and there they are. Now, imagine how exciting this would be. The gospel has never been brought to this place, right? You're the first one to bring this news of the gospel and Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. And this is just like the possibilities are endless. So they come to Philippi. Why do they go to Philippi? It wasn't in the vision. It wasn't in the dream. He goes to Philippi because this is how Paul rolls. Paul goes to the major urban centers first. They plant a church in the major urban center. And then from there, they would send out other church planters that would plant in more agrarian or more uh, less populated society. That's why Ephesus was another urban center. So they go to Philippi because it's the biggest city in the area, or at least the the, the most, um, as he says, kind of the, the primary city in the area. Now, what was Philippi? What was Philippi? Philippi was a Roman colony. It had been referred to before as Little Rome because it was so similar to Rome. A Roman colony, meaning Rome started it. It had its own autonomous government, and it was free from taxation. So that meant that a lot of Roman soldiers would actually move after the wars to retire there. So it was very Roman. This is the most Roman place that Paul has yet been to. And that's what I mean by this is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the Roman world. Okay, this is an urban center. It's a city. It's a fairly large city. Um, It's not the wealthiest, but it was a fairly affluent city. So I love how Kent Hughes states here. He says, Paul and his company were now in for a complete cross-cultural missionary experience. These guys are, they're, they're totally not in Jerusalem anymore. This is very different, a very different place. And we learn that right away because we see in verse 13, on the Sabbath day, which was what? Saturday, good job. Um, Now, it's the Sabbath day not for Christians, but the Sabbath day here for Jews. And how do we know that? Because he's trying to go to the synagogue. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, this is super interesting, guys. Focus. This is super interesting. The, The typical approach of Paul when he would plant a church would be to go into the synagogue Because that's where the Jewish men would be gathering, Jewish men and women, and they had a foundation for Christianity. So they understood and and already subscribed to the presupposition that scripture had authority. So they would go into the synagogue. Why isn't Paul going into the synagogue here? There's not enough Jewish men. It only took 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue. There's not even 10 Jewish men in the city of Philippi. Isn't that interesting? So they they don't know where to go. They catch wind or hear word that, hey, there's some, some Jewish women which is interesting, right? Because what was the Macedonian call? It was a man. Where's the man? <laughs> okay. Uh, they, they hear some women are having a prayer meeting down by the river. So they go down and they start talking to these women. Now, Paul was kind of a, a pretty big deal in the world of Judaism. So wherever he went, he, he was given immediate audience. So he would have been immediately asked to lecture and to, 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 to talk, which is perfect for him because he wants to share the gospel. Uh, so verse 14, one Who heard us, note that word, I'll come back to it. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. 
Lydia is from the city of Thyatira. Note that. We'll come back to it. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, who was Lydia? <clears throat> Lydia, we learn a few things about her just from verse 14 here. First of all, she was a Gentile, which means what? Non-Jewish. She's not a Jew. Naturally, we're in Philippi. We're very far from the Jews, and there's very few Jews in this community. Okay, like 0.0001% of this community is Jewish. So she is a Jewish woman, but she's what's called a God-fearer. What's a God-fearer? A God-fearer was a Gentile who was sympathetic to Judaism, who wanted to worship Yahweh God, but was not so ready to become a proselyte. A proselyte was a converted person. And there was all kinds of law and rituals about how you could become a proselyte. So Lydia was a God-fearer. That means she worshiped Yahweh, but she did not go so far as to, to, to become a proselyte. She's sort of courting Judaism, if you will, um, as, a Jew, as a Gentile woman. Now, this woman was affluent. She was independent. She was wealthy. She was a trader of purple. Purple was the color of royalty. So she travels for business. She's actually out of town here. She is from another place. She's from Thyatira. She's out of time traveling for business. This wealthy, God-fearing Gentile woman with a very good theological foundation. This is who Lydia is. Now, look at uh, the rest of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart. Who opened her heart? Was it Paul? It was the Lord. Doesn't the Bible make that just so comfortably clear that God saves? <laughs> God saves. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, but, but Luke makes sure we know the Lord opened her heart. How? To pay attention to what was said by Paul. So Lydia becomes the first convert. She becomes Leonard Schroeder. Isn't that cool? She becomes the first one in the Roman world, really, to, 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 to sort of be the, the first convert in Christian. It's really exciting. And I want you to notice a few things about how God saved Lydia. First of all, um, she carefully considered the gospel. That word heard there in verse 14, you might underline it, says one who, she was one who heard. That's a plural word. It means she heard them multiple times. It wasn't like a walk up on the streets, give your five-minute spiel, and all of a sudden she's converted, right? Paul had been coming to this prayer meeting probably multiple times, reasoning, giving his teachings, giving the theology that we read about in the books of Romans and Ephesians and Colossians, and she's being won over by the logic of the gospel. She already believes in Yahweh. <clears throat> she already has a good foundation theologically. So she hears carefully. I also want you to notice that Paul spoke he didn't just show up <clears throat> and mow her lawn and say, you know, preach the gospel if necessary, use words, right? Paul used words. He preached the gospel. He used words because the gospel is a message. It's news. He spoke the gospel. I also want you to notice that she, it says, paid attention to what was said by Paul. That word paid attention, it can literally be translated, she was attracted to it. She was attracted to what Paul was saying. There was something about what Paul was delivering, what, what he was explaining that was wonderful. In the words of Tim Keller, was wonderful to her. It was attractive to her. She was won over. Now, why would she be won over by the gospel? I think it's, it's not too, too much of a, uh, a guess to say that Lydia was kind of feeling caught between two worlds. Here she is, this Greek Gentile woman who was raised to be a polytheist, meaning she worshiped many gods, Raised in Greek dualism, which means that, that the spiritual and the physical are sort of at odds. Um, raised to, to sort of um, live just a very nebulous, pointless life. That was the Greek world, basically. And then she comes across Yahweh. <clears throat> Yahweh. She comes across Judaism. And she goes, I think this is the real God. And I want to worship the real God. But this whole cult that Judaism had become, and it had gotten pretty confusing. Like, the, the Jews made the Bible very confusing. They took the laws and they added more and more and more miles. I think she's looking at these two things and she's like, I don't, I don't feel like I fit with the Greeks and I don't feel like I necessarily fit with this Judaism thing. Where am I? And then here comes Paul. And Paul says, hey, there's freedom in Christ. You don't need to go through this proselyte rituals. You don't need to go subject yourself to this ethnic snobbery of the Jews who think you're nothing because you're a Gentile. You don't need to deal with the, the pointlessness of the Greek world. There is truth to be found in the gospel. And Lydia found it wonderful. She found it attractive. She found it beautiful. Isn't that cool? 
So here we see the gospel saving this, this, this rich, religious businesswoman who's very independent. It, it's, it's amazing. She becomes the first convert. Verse 15. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. I love this. She prevailed upon us. <laughs> you ever know those kind of people? You're like, no, I don't need dinner. You're good. Oh, oh, she prevailed upon us, right? Um, there are certain people you, you don't tell them no, right? Uh, Lydia is a strong woman. Lydia is a generous woman. Lydia is a newly converted woman who is excited about Jesus. She's excited about the gospel. She's excited about gospel ministry. She's excited about the church, and she wants the church in her house. She's like, hey, I got this big house, probably an Airbnb or something. She's from out of town. She's like, I got this big rental house, you know? Why don't you guys just come and stay with me? Now, these Jewish men are kind of like, oh, that looks sketchy. We can't stay with a single Jewish, like Gentile woman. That's super shady. Um, and Lydia's like, uh-huh, you're staying with me. I don't really care what you say, right? Lydia had great confidence in her newfound identity, in her newfound purity, and she had great confidence in her newfound generosity. She was a new woman with a new task, and now her house was their house, Mikasa, Sukasa, okay? Except I don't think that language was around then. Um, she is very ready to be generous. She's very ready to jump in. She's very ready to be part of the church. She's concerned for the furtherance of the gospel. And her church became the first location for Philippi. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? I love the Bible. It's so cool. So... This is our first convert, Lydia. Now, we see our second one in, in verse 16, uh, and this is this, this young possessed girl. Verse 16, we were going to the place of prayer, and we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now, the ancients were very mystical. They were very mystical, and they would pay a high price if they thought somebody could give them a little insight into how things are going to go in their life, right? So this young girl apparently was demon-possessed, and um, her demon possession gave her this clairvoyance to be able to tell people their, their future to some degree, and someone either already owned her or took possession of her is now pimping her out for her um, demon possession, okay? Welcome to life in the Roman world. If you're not a Roman citizen, you have no rights, you have no voice. This woman is completely taken under captive um, by these group of people that are making money off her. She has this, um, this spirit of divination. The word is actually pythos. Daryl Bach notes that the spirit, the spirit of pythos was said to direct women by overpowering them and allowing them to foretell the future, uh, soothsaying, apparently. So this girl is both possessed by the demonic and she is a possession. She belongs to someone. It's pretty much exactly what the world does to us, doesn't it? The prince of the power of the air has control of us, dead in our trespasses and sins, and by nature we give over the rights of ourselves to the world. We, we let things own us. This woman, this girl is owned by demonic and she's owned by humans. She's a perfect candidate for the transformative freedom of the gospel, isn't she? So Paul, who is not the Christ, by the way, okay, Paul is not the Christ. He's not Jesus. He's just a dude. <clears throat> she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, this is so interesting. Why is this young girl crying out about them providing the way of salvation? Isn't that so interesting? I mean, she's right. They are providing the way of salvation, right? She's right, but she's annoying. You can be right and annoying, by the way. Yeah, it's very possible. Um, what's happening here? Satan is meeting the advance of the gospel. Wherever the gospel is moving, Satan meets it. He meets it. There are no empty beaches in kingdom advancement. There are always barricades. There is always oppression. There is always resistance. And Satan is doing his worst here to bring some resistance. This girl's just caught in the mix. But what she's saying is absolutely true. They are providing a way of salvation. Verse 18, she kept doing this for many days. <laughs> now, never, just remember, by the way, Luke, who's writing this, he's here. So you'll, you'll hear him use us. Like he literally remembers this. He's like, this was annoying. I'm writing this in here. This was annoying. And it says, Paul, having become greatly annoyed 
Now remember, Paul's not Christ. You know what you won't find anywhere in the Gospels? You won't find Jesus being annoyed by someone who was demon-possessed. But Paul, he's just a man. And we need to remember that. Our leaders are just men. Okay? They're just men. He's just a man, and he's annoyed by this. So he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So Paul had it, okay? Her clairvoyance had become an annoyance, okay? He had it, he was tired of it, he turns around. And now this isn't, um, this isn't Paul um, using the right magic word to release this demonic power. This is Paul declaring the victorious reality of the gospel that Jesus has overtaken the world owns all power to the world, has the title deed to the world, and all Paul needs to do here in his apostolic authority is declare this, and it comes out of her. Now, she is free. She's free, and she's also now useless to the company that's been pimping her out. So verse 19, when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Boy, this is ministry, this is right there. You're seeing people get set free, God's working, and then you get the tar beat out of you the same day. It all comes at the same time. That's ministry. If you want to see the kingdom advance, get ready to get beat up. Now, I don't necessarily mean physically yet, but you're going to get emails. You're going to, it's, it's the, the hard things and the good things, they come at the same time. So immediately this girl's set free and rather than rejoicing, these guys just see that their money just walked out the door and now they're taking it out on Paul. So this girl has now found this freedom from oppression and from her owner's possession. Um, gospel freedom, by the way, gospel freedom upsets the world's economic system. It, it, it upsets it. This is why they killed Jesus. Did you know that? Because of money. That's why Judas betrayed Jesus, because of money. The, the Sadducees in particular that were making the money off the temple, they wanted Jesus gone because he was interfering with their money-making racket. And there's really nothing different here. They want these guys out of here because they've just taken money out of their pockets. So gospel freedom upsets the world's economic system. I just wanna say this, the best way to, to change oppression, the best way to change injustice, the best way to change things in our country, not the only way, but the best way is through gospel ministry. I'm not saying how you vote doesn't matter. I'm not saying um, what you say or what you um, picket for or what you protest for or what you, I'm not saying that doesn't matter. I'm not saying that doesn't change anything. But the, if you really wanna change culture, be a gospel minister. Dude, let's bankrupt the porn industry. Because so many people are coming to Christ that they literally will not click on that anymore. Let's bankrupt the abortion industry because so many women are coming to Christ, they can't fathom doing that anymore. The gospel is how we make a difference in culture. It's our primary job. That's why Jesus said, go make disciples. Disciples isn't just getting converts. Disciples is changing the entire system of how people think in their lives, which changes the entire system of where people live. We need more Christians. We need more mature Christians. We need more gospel-centered Christians. So I'm not saying don't get involved in political things. I'm just saying make your primary focus gospel ministry. That's what we're supposed to do. Verse 20, when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. And now, remember, like, Israel's a long way away. So this random little country somewhere. These guys are from this random little country, Israel. They're Jews. And they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, is that true? No. They just set a little girl from, free from being possessed. And, you know, they see this as being threatening to the very culture, right? Which is, I think Christians, like, people see Christians that way right now, right? We're threatening their very culture, their freedoms. I mean, when, when the whole Roe thing like, got overturned, it's like you'd think that we like, literally were, were killing people. Like our basic, fry, our basic rights and freedoms. Like these people, they think that, these, that, that, that Paul is a terrorist for setting a girl free. That's how twisted and wicked and backwards and upside down the world gets when it's completely um, sucked into a sin matrix. 
So these guys think Paul's the enemy. In reality, Paul just set this girl free by the gospel. Now the crowd, in verse 22, joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. What a great day. Does this make you want to go on a missions trip? Paul's like, yay, I knew that girl was annoying. <laughs> She's... <laughs> he knew, yeah, man. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. This is a Roman jailer, by the way. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. This is a bummer way to end the day for, for Paul and Silas. And about midnight, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Really? I don't, I don't know that I'd be doing that right now. I mean, I, I don't think I, I would be so frustrated. My, my millennialness would be speaking, this is just, Jesus must hate me and missions, missions suck. Like Paul and Silas just got the tar beat out of them. What are they doing? They're praising God. Now, this isn't like fake plucky optimism. This isn't like, oh, Paul must not have had a hard time with struggling. No, this is like a submitted choice to direct your attention towards God, no matter what. These were probably psalms of lament they were singing. You know, most of the psalms in the Bible are lament. These, this is a choice to say, I'm gonna put my attention on God right now, even though I feel terrible, even though my back is bleeding, even though this injustice has been done. These were Roman citizens. This was illegal. They shouldn't have done this. And Paul holds their feet to the fire at the end of this chapter. You can read it later. So what they did was unjust. It was wrong. It was immoral. It was wicked. And Paul and Silas could have been sitting here feeling sorry for themselves, but rather they've made a committed decision to put their attention back where it belongs, which is on the sovereignty of God. That God does not waste beatings. He uses everything. So, Verse 25, here we see our third convert. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Isn't that interesting? Who's watching? You know how you suffer really matters? Don't think it doesn't matter. And I'm not saying put on a fake smile and pretend like everything's fine. No, don't do that. I'm saying how you suffer, the grit in which you suffer with, your, your determination to lean into the grace of God in times of struggle and weakness and hardship and persecution is so important because everyone out there is watching how you suffer. And the way you suffer, Christian, is one of your greatest evangelistic tools. So the, the people in the prison are watching Paul and Silas and they're intrigued. And Luke makes sure we know that they're watching. By the way, how is it that Paul and Silas were able to do this? How were they able to sing? I'll tell you. Paul tells us in Philippians. He says, Philippians 4.12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And this is him writing to the church at Philippi. Philippians 4.12. And in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. What's the secret? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I thought that that verse meant I could score touchdowns on the field. <laughs> no. No, that verse means you can suffer well. Put that on your fridge, okay? You can suffer well. Paul says, I can do all things that Christ brings into my life through him who strengthens me. He's not gonna give me more than I can handle. By the way, Jesus told him this was gonna happen, didn't he? He said in Matthew 10, 17, beware of men, they'll deliver you over to the courts, they'll flog you in their synagogues, you'll be dragged before the governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles, all of this is going to be used for the spread of the gospel. You've heard it, Tertullian, Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It is always persecution that fertilizes the spread of the gospel. It just always works that way. So verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Why is he going to do this? He's going to do this because it's his duty as a Roman. And if he doesn't do it, Rome's going to do it for him. You take the, the position of the person that you failed to guard. Okay, so he immediately does what he knows he has. I guarantee he doesn't want to die. 
He didn't think this was going to be the night that he didn't get to go home and tuck his kids into bed. He didn't think this was the night that it was going to end. But somehow, miraculously, the doors have popped open. He assumes, because any natural person would assume that they ran right out the door. Wouldn't you run right out the door? Uh-huh. If you were in Roman jail, you would. He just assumes naturally these guys would run out the door. So he takes his sword and he's ready to fall on his sword. What has happened here? The jailer has assumed that there is no hope left for him. Perfect candidate for the gospel. The jailer has assumed that his life is no longer valuable, no longer needed. He has assumed that the estimation of his life by those who own him is correct. Rome says, well, if you can't do your job, then you should just die. He's believed that. Andrew Murray said, just as the water ever seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds you abased and empty, his glory and power flow in. This man is completely done with himself. He's ready to kill himself, to take his life. Dallas Willard said, the Christian life is what you do when you can do nothing else. (laughs) So verse 28, Paul the missionary, Paul the evangelist, sees what's going on here. And he cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. Don't harm yourself. What are you you doing? We're all here. Now, by the way, why is everyone still there? (laughs) Because they're like, what the heck is going on, man? These guys were singing hymns, and now the doors are broken. We're going to see what's going on. Something's going on. These guys are intrigued. They're like totally captivated. All the people in the prison are captivated. They're looking at Paul, and they're looking at Silas, and they're going, what are they going to do? And what are Paul and Silas looking at? They're not looking at freedom. What are they looking at? The jailer. Why? Because he's who they came for. He's not their enemy. He's the mission. They came to save people. And Paul has missionary eyes to see that right before him is not an inconvenience. Right before him is the mission. Here's someone we can bring the gospel to. How's Paul going to bring the gospel to him? Well, eventually he's going to use words, guarantee it. But first, he's going to use his actions by substituting himself in the place of the jailer and saying, no, 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 I'll stay, you live. Where do you think Paul got that idea? His rabbi. Who discipled Paul? Jesus did. What did Jesus do for Paul? Jesus said, no, no, Paul, I'll take death. I'll take the beating. I'll take the wrath of God. You take my perfection. You take my freedom. You take my life. That's called substitution. It's at the very heart of the gospel. Paul sees an opportunity here to step into what Christ did for him and to say, no, no, you live, I'll stay. Paul is a missionary, and he's living out the gospel. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he said, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. That's what Paul's doing here. He's making himself a servant to this man. He's, he's modeling the gospel. Verse 29 The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is crazy. He, he brings in the lights. He's like, wow, you're right. They're all here. And he immediately runs to Paul and Silas and he, th- he, he falls down on his knees. And he's, like, he's like, what do I got to do to be saved? And he doesn't mean, what do I have to do for you to stay in here so Rome doesn't kill me? That's not what he means. He means, what do I have to do to be saved eternally? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus. <laughs> believe, saving faith. And you will be saved. That's an amen. I'm taking that as an Amen. You and your household. That's another amen. I'm taking it. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Okay, so what is happening here? Why is the jailer asking this question? Greeks, they didn't really have a soteriology. They didn't really think about salvation in that way. Why in the world is this Roman asking a question? This is, tune in, this is cool. Why is this Roman asking them a question like this? What must I do to be saved? Well, What did the demon-possessed girl cry out in the streets every day? These men possess the answer to salvation. Could it be that this jailer had walked by, by God's providence, this young girl crying out and saw Paul and saw Silas and thought, that's weird. Wonder what that whole salvation thing's about. 
And then in a moment, his whole life is about to end. He's shown extreme mercy. And then he remembers they have the way of salvation. So whatever it is they have, I need it. Do you see how all the things align perfectly by God's sovereign hand to bring salvation? Isn't he good? He's so good at saving. It's incredible. It's like he knows what he's doing. And notice the jailer says, what must I do? Because that's what we all say when we first see our need for salvation, right? What must I do? What do I got to do? What do I got to earn? How do I got to, what, what, what are the boxes I got to check? What do I got to wear? What do I got to say? What does Paul say? No, it's not about what you do. It's about who you believe in, right? You notice that? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. They preached the gospel to him. And then he gets baptized, because that's what Christians do when they get saved. They get baptized. By the way, if you're a Christian, you haven't been baptized yet, come talk to me. We will dunk you immediately, anywhere. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> I will find water. Um, verse 33. And he took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once. He and all his family and he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You notice some similarity here between the jailer and Lydia? There's some real like common Christian action going on here. Okay, when you get saved, first you get baptized. You believe the gospel, you get baptized. Then what do you do? You start evangelizing. These guys both go and tell their whole house about the gospel. Then their whole house gets saved, right? And then what do they do? They immediately want to serve the kingdom, both of them, they're like, we're on, here it is, we're in, we're all in, let's see the kingdom happen, okay? They desire for fellowship, you notice that? They don't go, oh, I'm a Christian, cool, now my Christianity is gonna be podcasts and walking on the beach, because I don't really need the whole church thing, I've been burned there, Christians are mean, I'm just gonna have my Christian walk in the woods, okay? That's not what they do, what do they do? They get baptized into the community of faith. But you think there weren't annoying Christians back then? You think, you, you think we're the only ones? No. I guarantee there was some annoying Christians in the original Philippi. There's no annoying Christians in our Philippi, but I'm just saying, like probably, probably the odds are. Okay, being a Christian means you get baptized into the community of faith. This is what these guys did. You know, all the things we do, a lot of the things we do in church, they're for a reason. You know, we don't just dip people in water because somebody had a great idea. Like, oh, good idea. Let's stick some people in water. Call it baptism. Like, this is what Christians do. This is what we see in the Bible. This is how Christians got saved. Christians became part of a community. And then they served that community. They, they gave to that community. They, they, they ministered in that community. Lydia did it. The jailer did it. This is what made up the foundation of the church at Philippi. Isn't it a cool story? It's incredible. So now you go home to later and you read the book of Philippians, which is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. He's writing to these guys. He's writing. See how personal this is? It's not, it's not just random people. This is, these are real humans that had real gospel encounters. And you had a gospel encounter too. Jesus saved you like he saved Lydia, hopefully, if you're saved here. If you're not, get saved. Put your faith in Christ. Let the gospel transform you. Now, I just want to make three points in one end. There's three features of this church. I want to tell you why we named this church Philippi, okay? Um, why we named this church Philippi. There's three features of this church that we're deeply committed to. There's four, but I don't have time to get to the fourth one. There's three in this text that um, we're deeply committed to. The first is this. We are totally committed to God's sovereignty. We're totally committed to God's sovereignty. Um, there is nothing conventional or according to plan in the model of church planning we see here in, in Acts chapter 16. It blows apart all the models. And that's why I love it. You know, when we were getting ready to plant this church and I was reading all the books on church planning and listening to all the podcasts, all the experts, you know, tell you, this is what you need to do. You know, this, 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 and this, and you'll have a successful church. And I'm like, okay. And then I read Acts chapter 16. And I was like, that doesn't sound like any of that. <laughs> you know, like God does what he's gonna do. I don't know. Like, where'd you guys all come from? I don't, God brought you here. Like, it's crazy. God is sovereign. He just does what he's gonna do. I mean, think about this. What was the Macedonian call? Who was the, who was the, who was the call from? It was from a guy. It was from a man. Who was Lydia? She was a woman. So what, what in the world? Okay, um, a Gentile God-fearing woman, a slave who's annoying and gets them put into jail, who was demon-possessed, and the enemy, a jailer, a Roman jailer. These were the three people that started the church. Those are the three people God wanted to start the church. One thing that drives me crazy 
is church planning methodology that says you need to target your group of people. It's like Rick Warren did, right? So he was going to reach suburban people, middle class income, da 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 and you're going to figure out the right code. Now, Rick Warren re- reached people in the suburb because God said he could, not because he cracked some, cracked some stupid code, not because he figured out, well, if I preach this kind of sermon. No, we're going to reach the people God is going to let us reach because he's sovereign. It's his show. He's saving who he's going to save. I just, I just, I'm so committed to that. I'm so committed to saying, God, whoever you bring up those stairs, whoever you bring into our lives, whoever you bring into our sphere of influence, those are the Lydia's, those are the jailers, those are the slaves, those are the ones we're gonna minister to. I don't know who they are, I don't get to pick them, it's his job. We don't have some immaculate code cracking here about how to plant a church. We're just ministering to who God brings. And can you just do that with me? And you guys are doing it so well. Whoever God brings in this church, just minister to him, disciple him, pour into him. That's our job. The Lydia's, all of these, the the jailers, they're coming in here. You know, just a note too, we need to be cautious about loving the idea of ministry and not loving people. This This is so important. We can love the idea of church and not love people. We can we can love the idea of seeing people get saved. I just love the idea of getting people, people getting saved. A lot, of, a lot of this happens when you plant a church. People are like, well, church plant, that sounds so cool. And then they come and they're like, this is just like church. And I'm like, yeah, duh. What did you think it was going to be? All these people are broken. Like, I know. We're trying to grow. Like, <laughs> we, we need to not love the idea of ministry. We need to love people. Bonhoeffer said this, and I'm loosely quoting him, if you love the idea of community, you will destroy it. If you love people, you will create it. We love the idea of discipleship. We read Acts 16, we're like, oh, I wanna have, don't forget, Paul and Silas got beat up. Don't forget, this demon-possessed woman was really annoying. Don't forget, they were stuck wandering through Asia Minor, waiting to figure out where they were gonna go. Don't forget, they were homeless. Don't forget, Paul was constantly getting beat up constantly shipwrecked. You think life was fun for these guys? It didn't matter. They were a beachhead for the kingdom of God. You want to do gospel ministry, get ready for a bumpy ride. Can you imagine doing anything else knowing what you know? So we're committed to gospel, God's sovereignty. We need to see these frustrations, these inconveniences. We need to see them as the mission, not as a frustration to the mission. I mean, so many churches, like, somebody comes in, like, this guy's got a lot of problems, man. You're really, you're distracting us from the mission. (laughs) That's the mission, right? That's the mission. Number two, we're totally committed to gospel diversity. Totally committed to gospel diversity. Listen to this. This is so good. John Stott said, the head of a Jewish household used the same prayer every morning. Listen, giving thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. But here we, rep, we see representatives of all three of these categories, despised yet redeemed and united in Christ. A woman, a slave, a Gentile. These were the people Christ picked to be the foundation of his church in Philippi. No wonder Lydia didn't want to become a proselyte. These guys were jerks, man. The same thing happened in the, in the, 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 the sub kind of... Um, whatever it is, strata of Jesus' 12 disciples. You got a zealot, you got a zealot and a tax collector. Zealots, they hated Rome. The tax collectors, they worked for Rome. They were the sellouts, right? Same thing happened. So the reality is, is that our diversity, and I don't mean the diversity that the, the, the far left woke thing is telling us is diversity. I mean real diversity. Real diversity is one of the greatest features of the church. It's what makes the church so able to absorb and accept people wherever they're at and then begin to see them grow, okay? That's what um, the heterogeny of the church is supposed to do. Now I wanna say this. We need to take the word diversity back, It's been taken from us, just like the rainbow. Stop taking stuff. It's not yours. We need to take diversity back, okay? Diversity does not mean the absence of conviction and an allegiance to moral relativity. Diversity and inclusivity means an acceptance and tolerance of a person's differences, not the affirmation and celebration of a person's immoral decisions. Do you see that? They literally changed the word tolerance in the dictionary about 20 years ago. It used to mean, hey, if people are living differently than you, don't go beat them up. Let them live. But now it means you have to literally praise that. 
I want you to see the diversity in the community at Philippi. I put a little chart up here for you. You can throw it up there. Um, it's kind of hard to see. But I just want you to see the diversity. Ethnically, we have an Asian, a native Greek, and a Roman. Economically, we have wealthy, we have poor, we have blue collar. Spiritually, we have a God-fearer, tor- someone tormented by evil spirits, and someone um, practical and indifferent, the jailer. And all of the three ways that they were saved was totally different. Public, public exposition, dramatic exorcism, and powerful miracles and gospel example. Do you see the diversity here? The church should be the most diverse place in the world. Not because of our moral decisions, but because of who we are. Different skin colors, different backgrounds, different struggles, different heights, different likes. We should just be different. It's one of my favorite things about this church, actually, is some of the diversity that we have. Older, younger, married, single. We value that diversity. That diversity is valuable and it's beautiful and we're committed to it here. Number three, we are totally committed to gospel centrality. We are totally committed to gospel centrality. I want you to see that all three of these got saved because of what? Because they heard the gospel. They all heard the gospel. Okay, Lydia was saved from ethnic snobbery, Greek duality, and Judaistic slavery. She was saved by hearing this wonderful gospel, and she was saved to a new life, a new identity, a new purpose, and a new family. Okay, you get the idea. All three were saved by the gospel. So that's why we are committed here to seeing the gospel be the central feature of everything that we do. Okay, I'll end with this quote. This is by G. Campbell Morgan. He says, how little the world knows of divine movements. Rome had small idea that day that the van of the army of its ultimate conqueror had taken possession of one of its frontal defenses. On the day when Paul hurried from Neapolis over the eight miles up to Philippi and came into the city and made arrangements for his own lodging, the flag was planted in a frontier colony of Rome, which eventually was to make necessary the lowering of her flag and the change of the world's history. They didn't have a clue what one funny-looking little Jewish guy, and yeah, he, I think we think he was funny-looking, funny-looking little Jewish guy walking into Philippi was going to do to the Roman Empire in 300 years. So what can our little church do for the kingdom of God with the beachhead that we have been given by God's grace here in Grants Pass? That's why we exist. Our tagline is transforming lives with the gospel. We believe that God has started a beachhead here in Grants Pass for the purpose of reaching the nations and reaching Grants Pass. And the way we're going to do that is with the gospel. We desire to be uh, the, the first guy off the beach. We desire to be the one that the tip of the sword that just sort of opens up the beach so that God's kingdom resources can come flooding into this community and transform it from the inside out through gospel transformation. How do we do that? By sharing the gospel, by making disciples, by living the gospel, by seeing opportunities, by seeing the things that seem frustrating to us and seeing those as opportunities. Instead of whining about being in stocks, singing while we're in stocks, recognizing that everyone's watching. And then when God brings deliverance, we give him the glory and we wait for the jailer looking for the Lydias, looking for the annoying slave girls. How can the gospel set people free? Do you guys believe that the gospel can set the people free in this community? Then let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go to work. Father, thank you so much for Acts chapter 16. Lord, we named our church Philippi because we always wanted to come back to this. We always wanted to remember how powerfully the gospel changes lives. Thank you, Lord, that you have planted us here. And we know we're in for a lot of work. We know we're in for a lot of oppression. We know we're in for a lot of resistance. But we have the power, Christ, of your victory. We have your spirit living within us, corporately and singularly. We have this incredible message that transforms lives. And we have each other. We know what we're supposed to do. God, would you give us the strength to do it? In Jesus' name, amen.